Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on this project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk, and follow us on Twitter, at Autism Cinema. This podcast brings together a group of autistic and non-autistic thinkers, academics and cinema lovers for discussions on films and TV programmes with a particular autistic interest. We look at the representation of autism, the ethics of performing autism, as well as where autistic expression may have been captured, sometimes inadvertently, by the movement of the camera and the use of sound and imagery. We are always interested in our listeners' thoughts, comments and feedback, so please do share these with us by dropping us an email at cinemaautism at gmail.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to the podcast and share our episodes far and wide. In today's episode, the team discuss Darren Aronofsky's 1998 psychological thriller, Pi. In this recording, you will hear the voices of Georgia Kumari Bradburn, Janet Harbord, David Hartley, and Alex Widowson. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Well, I guess we should just uh, some, reference some of the structures of the film. I mean, we have uh, <clears throat> in Pi, Dar- um, Aronofsky's uh, 1998 film, we have a computer scientist working on a, to try and find a code or a number that seems to have some sort of explanation for um, how the stock markets are operating. And at the same time, there's a sort of collective of Jewish mathematicians, mystics, mathematicians, trying to connect this research to um, uh, the God's true name. Um, And so there's these circling forces, including a a corporate sort of, oh, I think we might have Georgia here. I just got a little flash of a G. And a yeah, she's oh. coming in. Here she is. We'll stop, uh, stop and start again, I think. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Hi, Georgia. Hi, sorry, I'm a bit late. Um, That's I okay. To... So we were just, we were only just starting off. Um, so um, David was just, um, Dave was just reading your your thoughts in the email because um, we had a discussion about whether we should proceed without you. So <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> That's all right. It's fine. Everyone's having a bit of a bouncy week this week, I think. So uh, yeah. and then Alex was just um, picking up some of your thoughts and, and giving a bit of an intro to to the film. Um, do you want to continue, Alex, and then Georgia come into that? Is that okay? We were just referring to the various um, players in the in the film. The um, the sort of uh, attentions that are all pulling on Max, Max Cohen, the lead. Um, so we have this um, these corporate interests who are trying to persuade him to work for them, but quite aggressively. We have the uh, Jewish cabal of mathematicians trying to uh, figure out the name of God through assistance from Max. And um, we also have his mentor, uh, another professor, who uh, seems to have earlier experience. Now, one thing that struck me in this film is that, it, you know, there's this strong sense of mysticism, which um, it's hard to sort of figure out how that intersects with autism, really. I think this film very much feels like it exists in a universe where God exists. And so the sort of mystic root of it sort of argues that there's this magic code of God's name and it's making people ill. And that is the sort of seeming delusional, potentially on your perspective, depending on your perspective, the cause for Max's suffering. But if we were to forget about the sort of God narrative, we basically have an individual with special interests who's taking them to the nth degree to the point of his own suffering. Um, It seems like the tensions connected to this this path are making life more and more difficult. His headaches become unbearable. He starts to experience hallucinations. Um, and the, the, the sort of goal for reaching, it doesn't seem to be a means to an end as well. It seems to be an end in itself, his interest in this one particular code in, in, the, uh, in the mathematics. 
So it's not really about, it, it does seem to be the special interest exists for itself, which I think is quite an interesting sort of connection to autistic traits. Um, but, you know, essentially it's a sort of cyberpunk Icarus story of, of man flying too close to the sun. That seems to be the sort of like major thread through the film. And I mean, I, as someone with uh, my own mental health experience, I felt like what necessarily connects this to autism? What, what, how, why has it not got anything to do with mania or psychosis? What makes it particularly autistic in its sort of connotations? Um, but I have heard people reference to Max as an autistic character, maybe because of his experience of social awkwardness with the neighbour in particular. He has a, an attractive neighbour who's clearly trying to chat him up every now and then, who he doesn't seem to deal with very effectively, or at least is very effective in the way he deals with her by pushing her away. But at the same time, there's a sense that he does want that contact and does appreciate the meals that she brings him. So... I guess I'm conflicted about whether or not this character does have, is clearly autistic or not. But um, yeah, I, I, I would wonder, you know, what does it have maybe more to do with psychosis? Yeah. Yes. I, I mean, I was, we've, we were just talking a little bit, referencing that question about, about character when Dave was reading George's email about the possibility of Max being a, um, you know, a problematic stereotype of a, of a, of a maths genius. Um, and I was thinking about that when I was watching it, but I was, I was also trying to, trying to sort of think about that in, a con in the context of really liking the way that the film seems to set a mood and a tone that feels autistic. And I was wondering whether we might think, whether focusing on character is in some way limits how we can think about autism and whether this film has an autistic tone rather than an autistic character. And that, and that seemed to me to allow us to think about the way in which, um, you know, the, the film is quite brilliant and in, in producing for us that sensory overload, the sound, the frenetic image that can be sped up, the, um, you know, the way in which, uh, sound can drop out, the way in which things can suddenly spill, the, the, the world's movements and sounds and um, and also the, the texture of things when he's got the, the gum stuff. I mean, that reminded me very much of uh, of David Lynch and um, David Lynch's first film, Razorhead, um, that there are moments of, of this film, the black and white, the graininess, the weirdness of, of the world that, re that reminded me a lot of, of David Lynch. I could see why Georgia would move from from Lynch to Aronofsky. Um, but yeah, is that helpful for, for us to think about a, the film having an autistic sensibility rather than character? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that in, in many ways. I, I think there is something to be said about the, the character of Max as having some autistic traits, especially through the, as you mentioned, Alex, especially through the social dimensions. But I, it, but this is a really good example of a film where we can move the sort of move the conversation away from that uh, towards much more of a uh, yeah, as you say, the the visual and oral expression of autism, particularly in terms of the the meltdowns and the um, the challenges, the sort of sensory challenges that he faces. Uh, I, I think that's a really really interesting reading the, the two films that I compared it to in my head in that regard were um, two films that I haven't seen for a while, but uh, the ones that popped in were the, the imitation game, the, the biopic about Alan Turing with Benedict Cumberbatch and um, a beautiful mind with Russell Crowe. And it feels to me, I haven't seen a beautiful mind for years, so I might be a bit off the mark with that one, but it feels to me like the, those are the two films were much more, much colder towards the, the main characters who are, you know, these mathematical geniuses. Whereas this one, Pi felt very intimate with Max and it felt like we were really there with him, really there with his senses, with his visions, with his hallucinations. Um, and that, yeah, the sort of very tactile nature of all of that, really. Um, whereas with those other films, you feel like you've got a bit of a distance from them, especially in imitation games, so that you're sort of observing Alan Turing rather than you're necessarily there with him. 
Um, so I thought that that's where the key difference was really. And with the imitation game, you get this deep connection, I think, between Alan Turing and the computer that he builds and all the computing and the mathematics, and that makes him quite robotic and cold. Whereas here, you've got much more of a sort of, I don't quite know how to phrase it, but I'm almost more a kind of warmer connection with the computing and the technology, which, which for me, um, does something a little bit more complicated with that kind of autism and computing trope, I think. We've definitely experienced the narrative side by side with Max. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the narrator is sort of like the little sh on the sitting on the shoulder of the uh, of the protagonist. Whereas Beautiful Mind, it's we sort of switch between perspective of his family and friends and colleagues. Mm. And but we do also start to experience some of the madness as a first person evocation. Mm as well so but it i think there's much more contrast between multiple perspectives in a beautiful mind from what i recall likewise it was a long time ago mm. but that film really is focused on the on this diagnostic sort of model of schizophrenia yeah um so it's like doing a lot of work to evoke those tropes essentially of what madness looks like and feels like yeah and I guess maybe that, um, whereas Aronofsky here, we're taking, we're taking on the journey to the point. I mean, what's really interesting about the sort of gradual step into madness is that uh, many parts of it seem quite logical, you know, well, okay, well, if we're going to take that previous assumption, literally, the next one is going to have to be uh, taken reasonably as well, because there are only small increments away from normal conceptions of reality. Mm -hmm. But we are taking on that journey. I think that's very interesting. Um, yeah, so it, it, by the time we get to the end of the film and he's drilling his own brains out, he starts to sort of empathise with, oh, I can see how you <laughs> Although I do think the ending is incredibly cynical, this idea of just removing his sort of savant difference mm. and it just being resolved entirely after he essentially commits suicide. But... Unsuccessfully, mm. I think it's I think it's a very sort of problematic gesture to put in a narrative that that you can somehow drill out the problematic aspects of your mind, and then survive and be a better person. A resolved happy ending where you just look mm. at the trees and you're no longer trying to work out the maths. You're you're just appreciating the beauty. Mm. That's interesting. I didn't see that as that final moment as um, a kind of conclusive uh, point for, for, the, for, for Max. I saw it more as, uh, you know, he, he, he's removed the special thing about himself. He's removed that capacity to, to, to relate to the world in a certain way but it feels as though he's quite muted as a person and that, that, that feels a little bit more um, as though it's a loss. I don't know, what did, what did you think about the ending, Georgia? Um, yeah, no, I, I, I sort of agree with what's been said. Um, I think, I think, yeah, it can be, you know, if, if you do kind of correlate it with autism, which again, it can be quite problematic. It, 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 it's quite questionable, but in, I think sometimes I don't know. I it's less of like a the uh, moral of the story type thing, less of a conclusion and more of a kind of what if. Um, so what if you were able to be free of of the the patterns that kind of um, and, you know make you think like that and make you live your life like that I don't know um if I, if I can just um kind of exp <laughs> just say um when I when I first watched this um it was this summer and I was going through um a bunch of films um and just making notes because I was looking for the closest thing I could find to a film that without through with not through like narrative or character but like through visually and through the use of um cinematic elements um was the closest to simulating what autism feels like or what a meltdown feels like and this got very very close um and i think it's very similar to what uh what you've said 
uh, in that it's it's more the feel of the film than the character because once you start to diagnose the character, you get into quite problematic territory. And there there are some definite similarities. And one of the main ones that I thought of was, um, so the the idea of trying to find patterns in life and the idea that the the idea that it's really hard to accept that the world um, is quite anomalous and that um, it is so unpredictable and that you have to strive to find patterns and because I, I do relate to that quite a lot, having to find coincidences so you can work out how things are going to happen because if you're not sure what's going to happen, it disrupts the order of things. It disrupts, um, you know, um, your thought process and also the fact that a lot of the time his internal monologue is kind of getting somewhere and it's always interrupted by just life so the couple next door um the woman at the door the guy singing on the tube um there's moments of where he's you know really in his own head and I guess this is like a universally relatable thing but I think especially I think with autism there's a the, the outside world can be like a hindrance to your own um, process and your own little little world that you create for yourself that you find this sanctuary with because yeah if you do um, say he's autistic then um, you could say it's like a special interest a hyperfixation and there's people that draw him away from that and that causes more and more frustration more and more angst um, but more than that um, it's just the feel of the film so I think especially during the, like the scene where he sort of has like a, a breakdown in the, in the tube. And um, there's like, um, th- there's a sense of anxiety in the film more than anything. Um, and the sensory elements are really kind of upped. And I, I see that a lot with Aronofsky actually, um, in stuff like uh, Requiem for a Dream and, and Mother. Um, there's moments where every sense, like the sound is just like, uh, enhanced to cause anxiety and like that's a little bit triggering for me to watch because uh it's a bit too relatable but I've always sort of wondered whether perhaps he's projecting his own experience of being overwhelmed with the world onto like obviously Aronofsky isn't autistic or we don't know if he is but um I I'm wondering whether it's his way of you know showing the world how he feels in these moments of anxiety and these moments of trauma or um, being being in your own world and being pulled out of it quite violently. Um, so, yeah, I think, because I, I, I went through all of Aronofsky's films. <laughs> I started with Pi and I ended with Mother. And um, I, I sort of came to a conclusion that he really likes to use cinematic elements to convey an experience um of anxiety of um a, a loss of order a loss of normalcy and they are key feelings that I relate to having autism um but again it's it's difficult to say really um that's all <laughs> I think that's yeah I think that really resonates I I yeah I, uh, I I like I mother is such a strange film and and uh, it was such a divisive film when it came out like some people absolutely hated that film but I remember going to see that at the cinema and I went to see it on my own and I really I love going to the cinema on my own it's one of my absolute favorite things but I was a little bit scared about doing it with mother because I thought this is going to terrify me and I've got nobody to hold on to and it was one of the single most exhilarating cinematic experiences that I've had for the past like decade like the the way that that film collapses down into the chaos that it gets to i was like completely glued to it i thought it was incredible um and yeah i think that there's something definitely similar going on here in pi where there's just such a that yeah i think overwhelm is probably the the right term for it where there's just constant overwhelm and interruption the bit that i that that i was reminded of when you were just speaking then georgia was the um it's one of the the scenes where he's in the cafe with the uh with the 
this sort of Jewish, the, the kind of Jewish cabal guy who sort of recruits, tries to recruit him into the cabal. Um, that kind of fast talking, sort of slick kind of dude who's in the in the cafe with him. And he's talking to, I think it might be the second time he's talking to him. And there's just a moment where this guy is talking, 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 and Max suddenly starts to hear different sounds in the cafe, particularly somebody opening those, that little carton of milk and putting it into the coffee. And I don't think it's Max himself doing that, but it's somebody somewhere. And you just get this shot where the, you hear the sound and then you see the milk being opened. And then Max is sort of just like kind of looking off to the side, like annoyed about this tiny little sound that he's picked up on while he's trying to concentrate on what this guy's saying, but also trying to concentrate on what he's trying to do with the, the numbers in front of him. And I think that's, that's something... Obviously, I'm not autistic, so I can't speak from direct experience, but that is, feels like something that's very uh, autistic experience of the world. This just sort of constant niggling interruptions constantly from the most loud and obnoxious noises down to the tiniest and uh, exaggerated noises in a way. Um, and I think there was a lot of that through this film, which was which I thought was really interesting. Um, and maybe it ties itself, as you say, Alex, to like more also to things like psychosis also to things like anxiety and um all these other sort of tangential uh bits and pieces that associate with autism but aren't necessarily always fully 100 percent autism but it, there seems to be i don't know it, the reading of it resonates in that direction i think and that um <clears throat> tube scene where he has a meltdown in the tube and then it ends up going to it was the the bit where he's um is prodding the the brain that appears on the on the steps with his with a pen uh which was so pure like a razor head and it was so weird and different and strange and difficult and actually a bit horrible to watch but there was something i think there was something interesting i think this is something aronofsky does a lot um in his other films where you go from the point of like the terror of meltdown and the terror of overwhelm and then through something which which then you end up in a kind of almost transcendental moment where everything suddenly gets a, a bit abstract and a bit strange and it's not so much about him rocking in a corner and grabbing his head and pulling his hair out it then becomes a sort of strange sort of surreal thing where he's just looking at a brain prodding a brain and a, a train noise is is interrupting him and he's prodding the brain again and train noise interrupting him and this is strange almost transcendental built up and i think there's a lot of that in um again it was years ago when i saw it the fountain one of his other films also in black swan a bit as well at times um yeah so yeah i don't know it was interesting but uh, i think that the yeah, yeah the interpretation of it is certainly it certainly resonates with me yeah, I, I totally agree with what you say, especially like with the, the sensory overload. Um, I think the sort of two narrative trajectories. So one is him solving the puzzle, solving the the sequence, and the other is him slowly um, deteriorating. On you know, he's being warned by his mentor that he's you know he's destroying himself, and he keeps going, he keeps going, and that two things are just rocketing forward but they're always connected um and so one of them is the in, internal kind of conversation the internal world which is him solving the puzzle and the other is the most obvious it's uh, apart from maybe the the um, stock market people is where he's being destroyed um and i don't know i thought that was interesting um, because human human life and the process of life always interrupts your own your own world. Um, it, it, and and there's there's moments where he's really getting onto something and he's really going on, and then it just stops because there's a sound or there's some, there's a distraction or there's someone at the door. Like the the, the first time you slid the computer. Um, breaks down is when he gets distracted when there's a couple having sex next door um and so those little human error is the is his main barrier you know he he functions he has this idea that he could function like a computer um and that's 
always true because there will always be distraction, there will be human error, and that's very hard to comprehend when you see you, you see the world as a pattern of sequences and um, uh, equations and formulas. Um, from from my own experience, um, you know, I, I do feel like I am looking for those coincidences, and when I find that there's an anomaly, I'm kind of a, I feel a bit lost because I have nothing to ho- grasp onto. Um, but yeah, um, with the sensory stuff as well, I definitely, I definitely feel like when I watched it, the, the moments of meltdown especially were extremely, I don't know, accurate. I mean, everyone's experience is different, but it was extremely accurate to my own, um, experience and even stuff like, you know, when he has the camera attached to his body and the, and the kind of long lens makes it feel very, uh, it attaches itself to him. It's very close to him, and he, it feels like he's in his own world, his own little fishbowl, when he's walking around. And there's people walking in different directions, and but he's somehow in a different world, you know. I um, that, that the way that they that Aronofsky does that, I think, the way he creates these moments of meltdown and these moments of um, breakdown, anxiety, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think is extremely accessible, um, or at least you know it, it reached out to me <laughs> uh, as someone who's constantly trying to find you know something I can show to people and say, hey, this is you know how it feels sometimes. And as a filmmaker of trying to find ways to recreate my own experience, I thought this was a really interesting um, example. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's. I, I think that idea of of the film being about meltdown is a really, really a, a quite a profound one, and it makes me think about how in many films, kind of mainstream films, we get to experience emotions of frustration, anger, anxiety um, as as aggressive, as sort of drives towards an, an aggression that's going outwards. And I think this is very interesting in that it it brings us into the body, as you as you say, and as you've all been talking about the kinds of intimacy that we we feel around this character, that um, where, where the world feels like an interruption rather than that Max is going to go out and do something terrible. Um, it, it, it reverses that that sense of, um, I guess, of, of the audience's anticipation of what's going to happen. I wanted to come back to a couple of other points that, that you've made, which are, one around patterns and I, I think it's I think the film takes us out of a of of a groove of thinking this is about someone who has a particular condition uh, and that's why they seek patterns to thinking about how this is a long historical legacy with pattern finding that has been very rich and productive you know he goes back to Leonardo da Vinci at some point um, we have a we have a, a connection to the stock market which of course is you know a, a motor in its own way of, of the world that we live in um, there's a way in which patterns are um, understanding patterns really are productive and creative and fulfilling and it, it it seemed to me that the film was presenting that as from from a particular angle um, from Max's point of view but enabling us to see how that how that perception of the world as, as patterns that we need to understand and meaning will, will, will arrive for us um, is actually quite a bedrock for how we all operate you know we we do expect to, to unlock the world in a certain way we do expect things to um, to add up and make sense um, so I thought that that search for connections and correspondences was um, you know took t- took me out of that space of of particularity to something more general and historical, but I thought the film pitched that as a question of whether the world was going to be unlocked in its meaning for Max, and and that was in some ways his madness. You know, it, the world wasn't going to deliver itself and and stock market be unlocked and so on. Um, through following this this numerical code, however, it was it was true that this code brought him all sorts of sensory resonance and relationships that that he could feel. And I wondered whether other people experienced that 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 the film kind of gave us an opportunity to 
to work with a cognitive sense of the world that it might be understood quite rationally or, or a sensory one. And, it, and the ending seemed to deliver much more towards a sensory one. Yeah, and I, I also think it, it, it went even even further than that in that it was suggesting that this this pattern is like a, a, a profoundly important part of the entire natural world, right? And like it was it came right from the center of the galaxy and and the, the spirals in 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 nature. And it's interesting actually when I was watching it on my computer screen at, at home, and I've got a um, a pine cone on my on my on my desk and. And I picked that while it was talking about all the kind of spirals, I picked that up and I was looking at the kind of Fibonacci sequence spirals on the bottom of this pine cone at the same time. So there was this really interesting tactile connection with nature at the same time. Um, and, and yeah, yeah, which is like really deeply ingrained in, in, in ancient philosophies and in, in art and all sorts of things. Um, and I thought that was interesting. I think that's what I, I've been trying to think about the ending a little bit. We've mentioned the ending already which is a tricky ending. And I, and I, I think you're interesting. I think your reading of that, Alex, is really interesting in, in that it's like a, a quite a violent moment of removing his own kind of his talent, I suppose, from his, from his mind. But at the same time, there's also a sense of, I don't know, really, there's a sense of calm and there's a sense of, of uh, just being, feeling level and feeling sort of like he's released something from himself. And it's the fact that he's sitting in the park and looking at those leaves at the end. And that, those, that's, that shot of those leaves, that sort of undershot of the canopy of those leaves comes back time and time again, especially when he's talking about these patterns in nature. And yet to me, those leaves seem a little bit, seem almost like the most chaotic and patternless uh, shot almost in the film, doesn't it? Whereas everything else is all about the spirals and the kind of the golden ratio and mapping it all out. There's something a little bit messy about those leaves in, in particular in, the, in that park. Um, and it's the way in which he's sort of looking up at them and and, and seems to be quite calm and, and peaceful at the end makes me think that he's um, he's made some sort of decision or he's made some sort of choice about his life, which is moving him away from the obsession about the pattern in the stock market and much more towards patterns in sensory and natural information that comes to him, I suppose, and how that is feels better for him or, or feels calmer for him or more, makes more sense now, perhaps. I don't know. It's, it's a peculiar thing and it's not... And, and since it become, it comes straight off the back of the, the most violent moment in the film where he starts drilling his own head, which is really horrible... Um, there's a strange juxtaposition at that point. Um, what was I going with that? But I think that, uh, yeah, okay. So, so the one question I have about the patterning and all that sort of thing was, sorry, I've got a cat trying to jump on me. Come on then. Um, here he is. Uh, so it's, this is Mustin. Hello, Musty. Uh, the one thing I a question was, I, I, I didn't fully at any point really understand why he was so obsessed with cracking the stock market. It didn't seem to be for financial purposes. It didn't seem like he was going to play the stock market and try and win loads of money. It just seemed to me that, that he picked up on that as a really major pattern in the world that he just wanted to crack. And I didn't really understand why necessarily he had fixated on that. Um, yeah, I think that's what, that was my thoughts. But you've distracted me, mate. Um, I think he's he's he isn't he obviously uh, like striving for a secular version of what the the sort of right. uh, mathematical Jewish group are are striving for, which is some sort of divine answer to to unlock a sort of unified theory for unlocking chaos within nature and humanity. I mean, I think there is this there is one sort of major problem within this which is that there are two orders of chaos there's there's the first order of chaos that where actions and people's behavior doesn't influence the outcome such as the weather whereas um, there's the second order of chaos whereas people if people are aware of predictions then they can change their behavior and then it becomes even more unpredictable which is how the stock market operates mm -hmm. so it's it's an unsolvable problem that people have been aware of for a long time and I just had that going off in my head as this film went. <laughs> it's like, no, it's a waste of time. <laughs> but yeah. um, I mean, if we go back to that ending, I, I think what, there's several reasons I think it's deeply cynical. First of all, you know, we, 
we were charged with looking at this film through the lens of autism. And what does it, what metaphor does it relate to? Well, it's the autism speaks argument that let's find a cure for autism. Let's try and get rid of autistic difference. Mm. Let's, um, you know, I, I remember once asking someone like, would you get rid of it if you could? And he said, well, I'd have to commit ego suicide in order to do that. <laughs> and um, I was like, well, that's a very good perspective. I mean, thank you for... <laughs> pointing out my ignorance here but um and so then you know and the other and if we're not talking about it in terms of autism we're talking about it in terms of mental health and we're talking we're sort of self-administering lobotomies here mm. um and i think those practices have been deeply problematic and ruled out for a reason but ultimately we're producing a happy sort of endings immediately afterwards. And I know it's for a sort of discordant reason, but it's still deeply cynical, I think. You know, the message here is um, you should eradicate this because it's too hard to handle and you'll be fine if you do try and get rid of it. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about those two different versions of this that, that we've got from, from you, Alex, thinking about you were saying... I think I wrote down magic code makes people ill, that this, this search that he's on sort of takes him in this direction. And I'm also picking up on what George has said about this, um, that the desire to work out what's going to happen to, to, to try and find out um, and predict what's, what's going to take place is also part of this, this desire to find a code. So I can see how it's just a, it's, um, it, it's a drive towards something that's about, um, containment, predictability, um, uh, a, a mapping of the world that will allow some kind of understanding. Um, whereas the world seems to keep exceeding that. And that's, that's what the film demonstrates for us. Um, so I, I can see how how there's a negative reading of of the ending as a as an eradication of that of that drive to to find the code to to work out how the world works. But I also think there's something in it that is about affect, and it sort of joins joins up with this this idea of of meltdown, and it 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 kind of makes me think about how the world works and how the stock market is driven by affect, actually. And it's, you know, there are loads of people standing in a room, I mean, and waving their hands and responding to things in the moment. And, and that sort of drive, I think Brian Masumi talks about the stock market in this way in his book on um, parables of the virtual, where, where you know, the, the stock market isn't rational. It crashes. It, it has movements that are very unpredictable, that people are responding in a very sensory kind of, you know, momentary uh, reactive way. And yet that's, that, that, motors, that motors the world. Um, what what do we do with this kind of affect? I think is also posed by the film. It's there in the street when he goes out. That you know there are people trying to manage it. Whether they're doing martial arts, um, whatever it is they're doing, people are trying to kind of mo manage their own or, or or kind of calibrate their own responses to the world. Um, and that 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 seem, we seem to see that replayed through the film. We see it in terms of Max's own. Um, discussion of like you know drugs of caffeine there's this that and the other he lists several mm. times all of these different possibilities of self-medication including things that we don't think of as medication like caffeine um, so i so i think there's also something in the film that is about uh, a, a question of how we all experience affect or how affect circulates in our world and what we do about that you know how we manage it how it drives us is that is that a productive thing for us or is it a very difficult thing to channel and we're talking about um autism as part of a discussion about all of us monitoring how we monitor ourselves in relation to those sorts of drives of feelings yeah and how all those things conflict against each other from from different different types of people. I mean, everyone that Max encounters always, they all want something slightly different from him and slightly different from their own affect, affective um, reaction to the world. You know, the, the Jewish cabal are looking for their answer within the, of the kind of the, the name of their God and the, the corporate thugs are looking for access to the secret of the stock market. But even, <clears throat> even his, mentor seems to be uh, 
looking for patterns as well, which even even though uh, his mentor ostensibly coordinates with his with him and with his way of thinking, there's still a uh, there's still a friction between them. There's still a, a problem there. Um, there's that bit where the mentor is trying to talk about the the pattern within the go board and how um, when that uh, there's a theory to say that no two games of Go have ever been the same because it's such a, a vast and chaotic pattern uh, or, or lack of pattern, I suppose, or such a broad pattern that you can never really find or see that full pattern because it's so chaotic um, and so varied. Um, so, yeah, all of those things, sort of all of those different ways of being within the world conflict against each other. Uh, and so in that sense, it becomes... I guess a narrative about neurodiversity in a way it's about different ways in which people interpret things and how we coordinate those together to sort of move forward and I think one of the things I I think one of the things I maybe liked about the ending again I'm still understanding on the ending but was the the nice exchange between him, him and the little girl that that keeps the little girl that keeps bothering him to do the the basically the savant mathematics she has the calculator she calculates like she picks out a random calculation and he does it in his head and, and that sort of amuses her but in that, that that last scene there is that lovely exchange between the two of them she's this kind of pure sweet innocent girl who just enjoys the magic of maths i suppose and he's um for the first time in the film he really sort of indulges in her and 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 they they share a nice little moment together, which I think is quite sweet in a way. And I think there's a message in that about about coordinations of different minds rather than um, the constant sort of pushing away of people, I suppose, or the constant constant disconnect between different ways in which people think potentially. But um, when he does indulge her, that's because his. Uh, difference has disappeared and he can't do that magical savant trick but i wonder if he's just i don't know i'd have to watch it again but part of me thinks like has he just chosen not to do it it does he is he actually doing it in his head but he's just decided that it's better for him to pretend that he doesn't know the answer and and let her give the answer instead i don't know i'm not sure i haven't decided on it really well it's Um, one of those moments that creates an opportunity for fantasy we can fill that void with whatever we want yeah totally yeah for me it seems very clear one way to you Mm. it's ambiguous yeah there's something i don't know i think it's because the feel the tone of it i don't know there's something a bit ambiguous about it i can totally say i can totally go along with your reading of it definitely and maybe that is what was intended but i I feel like i'm trying to sort of pull out something different from that a little Mm. bit and it may be because i'm intentionally looking for a neurodiversity reading of it i suppose or a kind of autism positivity reading but it, that might not be there necessarily. Maybe Aronofsky is not the right person to look for positive messages. Maybe. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can I can definitely see see the the cynicism because because it, it sort of replicates this kind of nice happy ending, you know, appreciating nature, like a good interaction between people. Um, but this, yeah, like you said uh, at the start, it's followed by a lobotomy scene mm. uh, or like an act of suicide um so f- what does that say about you know people who maybe don't fit into the norms of society people who aren't maybe neurotypical or just you know um uh integrated into society not alienated stuff like that what does that say about um having to go to extreme lengths in order to just be like mm. everyone else and it is sort of beautiful but it's um it's really sad because you lose every uh, essence of him as a person you know his hair is gone everything we know about max is gone and that's um it's quite a sad ending um because whilst those are the things that perhaps disrupt his life, um, you know, it, it's how we define him as a person. And it's not always a bad thing. He's kind of like a, a misanthropic character. And by the end of the film, he's quite warm to people. But it just, it feels really strange because that's just not how we know him. 
it it really i think it does depend on through what lens you read the film so if you are looking at the film you know through the idea of neurodiversities and autism you can definitely see it that way um but if you see it maybe as like a disease um maybe it can be a happy ending or maybe like an alternate universe ending because i mean if you if you drill through your skull that's not going to end well no. <laughs> um that's not that's not exactly um going to end with a happy ending but perhaps it's sort of like a dream universe of mm. you know what if i was free of all of these things and I, I suppose i mean for for people who kind of have lived kind of on the margins who don't really fit in there's always been this thought of you know what if i was able to live like this and so part of me thinks that's what it is maybe Aronofsky's projecting you know how life would be if you know we didn't have these intrusive thoughts if we didn't have these really rigid ways of living or needing to live according to these interests and these patterns and um, once we find something and we're on something we have to carry it on and there's no end and if we were free from all those say constraints or or um um qualities you know would it would life be so much better um I, I think it's to me it was less of a conclusion and it was more of a it was just it opened up for me because I, I i i will say when i first watched it i really did not know what to make of it uh in terms of how it ended in the conclusion and thinking about it now it does feel extremely open very cynical but also um again it really does depend on what you what you're thinking when you're watching the film you know how you see max and how you relate to max yeah mm. i had a thought oh sorry did Please you want to go, go Alec. no you go. i was having a thought about the um the sort of final sequence and it struck me that there's a child in this moment where max seems to have given up on his career and passions and i was wondering if there's any like anxiety about parenthood within Aronofsky's sort of narrative about like, okay, well, we have this intensely workaholic sort of character who then is sort of letting go of his uh, special interest or passion. And then all these sort of social, I mean, maybe he lives this sort of heteronormative, um, uh, sort of neurotypical everyday lifestyle where he has to engage with social activities and what is sacrificed is mathematics. Um, but I, I just thought it was—it it seemed like such a sort of neurotypical, um, sort of a typical, in many ways, uh, in many senses of the word, typical sort of scene. The sort of interacting with the young child, and the sort of other responsibilities of life. And I wondered if it related to the director's sort of anxieties about passion and career. I mean, it's certainly something I think about before having children, um, like what would, what is going to be gone. What can I? What can I not do? I think there's also a way in which the child in the film represents something good for him, though, and, and holds on to that. That you could say there's a, a way in which the child, uh, you know, sustains this passion rather than taking it from him. It sort of resonates with something that he has and has perhaps had to relinquish by the end of the film. But I think it's a really interesting thought about parenthood in his work more generally. That, just thinking about the relationship between the mother and son and Requiem for a Dream, you know, that, mm. her reality of the TV world and his, his drug-fueled reality and those sorts of encounters of two very different ways of, of being that are, that are both kind of um, altered states, if you like. But I, we need to end quite soon. Can I, can I just pick up on one point that... Um, I've got in my notes about technologies and it's sort of running around my head at the moment where I'm thinking about the links that have been made to, um, to Turing, to, um, to, to, to computers. And I was noticing how much technology is foregrounded in the film. It's, there's retro stuff with the phones and so on. There's um, some of the sound stuff is very retro. There's the whole, you know, mise-en-scene of, of, of his room, which is an amazing amalgam of, of, of mechanical and computational things. 
um, that are also seem quite kind of like just soldered and welded and patched together. Uh, that isn't this idea of slick technology, but this, this whole kind of machinic world that he exists in. Um, I, I mean, I guess I was, I was thinking, I was wondering whether we can recast the ending in that light. Does the ending suggest possibly that the world of technologies, mediated life, um, pushes us towards these, these intensities um, and nature offers a more simple version. Is, is that also another possible reading of the ending? Mm. Mm. Well, that's one of the things I really, I really enjoyed about the film was the, the, the kind of sort of lo-fi aesthetic of the, of the computer in his room was one of the few sources of kind of, amusement in the film I just, I just i was always amused by how clunky his keyboard was and and how the fact that it was seemed to be like crawling with ants and there was like it almost seemed to be glued together at places and there was some sort of weird sticky fluid in it and the moment where he has to where there's that strange sort of chamber which keeps in like the main part of the computer's brain and he has to carefully take it apart and pull it apart and then he smashes it to the ground all of that was pleasingly kind of um clunky and lo-fi and 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 kind of like early cyberpunk kind of feel to it and there was nice i, I quite liked that i thought that that was a, an element a sort of strain of of humor in there a sort of strain of like almost of silliness which i appreciated and um i think you're right in that way that janet that he doesn't that aronofsky's not like saying oh this is an amazing supercomputer this is a cobbled together clunky um uh jerry-rigged device thing that sort of wheezes and kind of clunks and whines and and doesn't quite work and blows up in kind of almost be like sci-fi b-movie kind of ways and that but clearly it's also something that's really important to max as a as a character it's clearly you know he's named it and he's clearly like treats it with a bit of reverence and when he's kind of hovering over the return key a few times he and, and he almost cares it's almost something that he cares for it's almost something like he lives with and cares for in a way um but yeah i do wonder yeah perhaps that is uh perhaps it's a the, the ending is partly of a freeing himself away from that that entrapment there's something web-like as well about that computer and something the entrapment that 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 that, that that Euclid has put him into in that in that tiny apartment, and the the going into the park at the end is is a way of him reconnecting with the natural world a bit more and, and moving away from this strange computer that's got it's got trapped in this room. Um, it's sort of like a man in his boat, naming it. Yeah, and, uh, sort of being off at sea, floating, sort of uh, detached from the rest of society. Mm. Okay, have we come maybe to a natural end of our discussion? Um, well, that I've made quite a lot of notes there, and I, I think that was a really fascinating discussion about Aronofsky, and it also makes me want to go and have a look at his other films and think and think about how our uh, our different ideas about about him, whether it's about parenthood or altered realities, um, neurodiversity how that plays out across his his all of his work